And hello and welcome everyone to this week's edition of Novak Now here on the Nachum Siegel Network. I'm Jake Novak. And again, you can follow me on Twitter at JakeJakeNY is the best, to, best, best place to follow me uh, for stuff on hourly, sometimes minute-by-minute basis of the news and other things that you may have missed. Um, and uh, you can also catch me on Facebook for some longer-form things that you might find. Uh, and uh, again, you can find uh, all the columns pretty much I've ever written at CNBC.com. You just do Jake Novak, CNBC on Google. And you can also find me on LinkedIn. So these are all the places where you can see longer form stuff I've written. I'll be, the reason why I say this at the beginning of every program is because I often refer to uh, columns that I've written. I often refer to other news, event, news stories that other people have been covering, other columns that other people have written. And if you're wondering, hey, I'd like to, you know, where can I find that thing that, that Jake referenced? Where can I find it and read the whole thing? Um, Looking at my Twitter stream is the best place, Twitter feed is the best place to find it, but also you can find it in the other places I mentioned, either on my CNBC archive page, the, uh, my LinkedIn page, things like that, and, and even Facebook. But usually on Twitter, if, you're, if you have the patience to scroll through, it, it goes quickly. I don't really write too many very long things. I have a thread here and there, but for the most part, I keep it moving. Uh, and if there's anything that you want to see, I mean, hey, if you want to challenge me on some of the things I've talked about and you want to find out what I'm referring to, that's a place to go to as well. So friend or foe, that's the place to find me. Um, I have a couple of main points. There's one that I'll spend about 65% of the program talking about and another, and the remainder about something else. There are a couple of main points that I want to hit. Again, we're, we're still very much under the under the uh, under the the cloud of the coronavirus that is a story that you just cannot get away from any other story that you mention pretty much has to be put into the context of what we're dealing with here with the coronavirus and you know the news is mixed i i want to be an optimist and i and i usually am i'm liking what i'm seeing about the reduction in the number of new infections here in the new york area I'm liking even more than that the reduction in the daily deaths here in the New York area. Um, see, we're seeing so you know fewer people coming into the hospital in the New York area. All this stuff is really, really good news. Very happy to see it. But again, we have to be cautious for a couple of reasons. One being that we know that some there have been a number of cases of people who have recontracted the virus. So I really don't think that's incredibly widespread. So thank thank goodness for that. But there's that. Also, if we let our guard down, there is a chance, and again, I want to underline chance, that we will have a second larger outbreak for everyone here. Uh, so those are the things that I, I, again, we should all be cautious about. And I understand the foreboding about it, and I understand people who want to be extra cautious about that from strictly from a medical standpoint. I'm not talking about people who may be trying to take advantage of this for economic reasons, which again, I'll talk a little bit more about a little bit later or want to take advantage of it for political power, greediness, all that stuff. I don't want to completely discount that because that's in play here as well. But first and foremost, we have to be cautious medically, and I think that within reason, it makes sense to at least at least keep up this social distancing kind of stuff. And, you know, one of the things that people, I think, don't understand is that you can continue to have a much safer way of conducting your daily life with social distancing and more frequent hand washing and just being cleaner and more careful without locking down the economy as much as we have been. 
In other words, I think we can start reopening some businesses and even some schools if you know, provided we really get the message through and, and, and give people the ability to be more socially distant, to wash hands more, to be smarter. You know, let me start with places of work. For those of you who work in bigger cities these days, and I'm, I'm sure this is happening in smaller towns as well, but certainly in bigger cities, you have to have noticed the, the more living-like quarters that our workplaces have become, right? We've moved from having a little bit of a water cooler and a coffee machine in offices to full-on break rooms, nap rooms, dining areas, um, all kinds of other types of places at work where we're, we're like living in a house together. Now, I've always been a little bit worried about that because like many people, I was, I was a little suspicious. This whole push by the companies to make sure that we're eating and sleeping and playing ping pong and all that kind of stuff at work sounds nice. But to me, it was pretty transparent that they were really just trying to squeeze out a few more hours of work from all of us by keeping us you know, fed or some, you know, giving us a chance to have a little bit more of a break at work rather than going home. So I already had a problem with that. I think that that way of office managing, that way of, 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 of the American office, especially in big cities like New York, Los Angeles, and San Francisco, I think that's got to end. Uh, it's one thing to be working together with people, and sometimes you have to be in close quarters. But I don't know of too many instances at work where we really all need to be within six feet of each other, like closer than six feet of each other. I know that there are some. I get that. But, you know, especially if you're a doctor, I'm not talking about people where, you, where your job is literally touching and examining people. But I do think that we're already too much on top of each other at work. We're already conducting too much of our non-work lives together at work. And I do think that we can reopen work, but I think that the break rooms and the eating rooms and all the free food and all that has got to stop. Because that spreads disease, just like it does in your own home. I think that we should really consider reopening the schools with breaks for kids to go and wash their hands regularly with hand sanitizers at every desk. <laughs> I know that's going to get messy for some of the primary school students, but I think that's got to be happening. I think that the way that they do lunch, I, I think they're going to have to have more lunch periods so that everyone isn't all having lunch together at the same time. I know that most schools don't do that now, but I mean even more do- distancing so that you have just a few kids at every lunch table so that they can be more apart. And things like that. Uh, I'm not pretending that I know exactly how to, to in, initiate this and execute all this that I'm talking about. But I do know that it is absolutely possible for us to get back to a more normal life. It won't be the same. But we can get back to a more normal life today, in my opinion, even in New York. If we allow our workplaces and our schools and our shoals and our churches and things like that to be a little bit more accommodative of social distancing. I think it can be done. It's going to be harder in some of the places and some of the more crowded synagogues, for example, that's going to be tougher. I think they're going to have to do more in different minyanim. I think they're just going to have to do it. They're just going to have to find a way to do that. I think that the schools are going to have to have probably a somewhat shorter day I think the schools are going to have to figure out how to maybe, maybe that's the way that they get around that lunch problem. They just have a shorter day and send the kids home, start school at seven, send them home at noon, and it's better than nothing. Um, 
And I think one of the easiest things to do is that for these workplaces that have nap areas, and when I say when I say like break rooms and common rooms and 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 snack rooms, I'm talking about these places where everyone is on top of each other at the sink, and they're making their food, and we're sharing dishes. I mean, I, I've worked in a number of places where there's common dishes that people use for food. <laughs> I mean, this is I mean, you're really like you're creating this kitchen living room like atmosphere at work, and I think it's inappropriate for a number of reasons, not the least of which. Uh, the health issue, but also the 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 fraud that it kind of is imposing on people to get them to work longer for the same money. So these are things that I think we need to do and I think can be done. But what I want to really focus on right now is the smug, self-important, superior attitude that a lot of people, even in or especially in the coronavirus epicenter that is New York and New Jersey, are expressing towards other Americans. This is something that I saw nonstop over the past week, and it never ceases to annoy me. And it goes beyond just annoying behavior. There's a fraudulent aspect of this. There is a dangerous partisan war battle being waged based on this fraud that I want to talk about. So the biggest instance, the thing that I think a lot of us are guilty of, people who aren't necessarily celebrities or news reporters or pundits or elitists, but live in this area. A lot of us have been susceptible to this because I've seen it all over social media and I have a very wide following on social media and I follow even a wider group of people on social media, people who are not just conservatives, people who are not just liberals, people who are not just in the middle of the road. I mean, I have a big, big group of people that I follow and, who follow, and, and follow me back. So I get a pretty wide-ranging feed of folks. And then, of course, I'm also reading basic news stories as well. But I saw all week a bunch of New York area people. And remember, here in the New York area, we are, to say we are the epicenter and the, and, and the ground zero or anything else you want to say about New York and the New York, New Jersey area in, and the coronavirus would be an under- understatement. The number of infections and the number of deaths in, in New York City and the New York City area I'm talking about Westchester and Long Island and the New Jersey suburbs and those places is well over half the total infections and deaths in the entire country. Well over half, more than 60%. If you take away the New York deaths, that 41,000 death toll that we're at as of Monday, April 20th, is less than 20,000. I think it's less than probably 15,000. So we are the proverbial people living in the glass house. And yet many of us are throwing stones. Because over the weekend when we saw stories of people in Minnesota going out and protesting what they felt were two draconian economic lockdown measures, when we saw people, pictures of people in Florida walking on beaches, not rolling all over each other like those spring breakers were a couple, you know, six weeks ago. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people walking on a beach, probably with the people they're living in the house with. And not on top of each other and not uh, making, you know, pyramids or, or swimming together or anything else like that. I'm talking about socially distant activity, relatively socially distant activity on a beach. And when we saw things like that, we saw over and over people here in the New York area posting snobby, self-important, incredibly non-self-aware posts about how dumb these red state Trump supporters are. Again, no, no way to know whether these people were Trump supporters or not. I really don't know. About how stupid they are for not being more cautious during this virus. And look how dumb they are. And they're really going to get it. Meanwhile, we're you know, 
proverbially dropping, proverbially dropping like flies here in New York City. Thankfully, not for not literally dropping like flies, because again, even twenty thousand deaths in New York City in the large New York City area, when you're talking about all the encompassing areas, thankfully, is not a huge percentage number, especially when you consider how many people are infected with the virus. So, thank goodness we're not dealing with a real situation where we're looking to our left and our right and seeing people dying all around us. That has not quite happened, thank God. But we are in a situation where we are the epicenter of the virus and we're scolding everybody else. Florida, the last I checked, had about 750 deaths. Now, the state of Florida, I know New York City is super big and bigger than any other city in the United States. It's more than twice as big, actually, than any other city as far as population is concerned when we add in all the people who are living and working in the area. But New York State is not all that more populated than all of Florida, for example. And yet Florida only has about 750 deaths. That's not great. Wish all those people were still alive. I really do. But on a percentage basis, Florida is doing just fine compared to, to New York. And Minnesota and these other places where there were some protests, they have not been touched by this virus in a way that we have. If there ever was a time to bow our heads in a little humility and say, wow, People are dying around us. We don't really know how to beat this yet completely. We're not really sure how this started and where it happened. For people, for, that's really the way we should be responding to this. And instead, it's look at these dumb people saying this, look at these dumb people doing that, in all these places where there's less of an effect. Of course, any dime store psychologist can tell you the reason for this. It's not really that hard to understand. First is, of course, we've got elitist, snobby, self-important types in New York anyway, in New York and Washington. I mean, I've lived in both of those cities, and the people in those cities are very susceptible to this, especially those who have some kind of an official job. But also, it's very obvious what's going on here. We're living in a scary time here in the New York area. It's scary to see, about, to see all these infections. It's scary to see these people dying. And instead of confronting that and facing it head-on, it's a little easier to go and wag our fingers at somebody else. So a lot of people are doing that. And you see that on Facebook and, and, and Twitter all the time. When people, that, that sort of, let's gang up, I'm having a tough time, or we're, we're dealing with some kind of t- challenge, whether it's the virus or not, there is a tendency of a groupthink gang-up session on Facebook every couple of weeks. There's a new thing for everyone to kind of jump on. We've seen that phenomenon. There's been people who, smarter than I am who have written about this. Um, and uh, somebody I know pointed out that this was something that was a, uh, a plot line in 1984, George Orwell's book, 1984, that everyone kind of has a, a cause that, the, that Big Brother tells them to, to shame others about, and then they move on to another one. So Facebook has kind of been yet another manifestation in real life of something that Orwell wrote about in 1984, which is supposedly a fiction book, but sadly keeps touching on things that happen in real life um, in, in the, you know, it's been 72 years, I guess, since that book was written. So we have all that going on. So that's, that's a big reason for all of this. But there is a little bit more of an even more nefarious thing going on here, and that is the use of the coronavirus situation as a weapon to go after usual suspect enemies. In other words, person A doesn't like person B, never did, doesn't like that guy, and when bad things happen, they decide to blame them always on, on person B, whether they had anything to do with it or not. And when bad things happen, it's always an excuse to, to hit that nail with the hammer. 
that you are. And that's dangerous when we're talking about not just person A and B, but we're talking about entire industries, entire groups of people in this country. Because it reeks of things like blood libels against you know, our fellow, fellow Jewish people, which during Passover, you know, Pesach, which just ended, we, we talk about a little bit more than the rest of the year. We know how dangerous that kind of stuff is. People who always hated Jews, uh, a tragedy happen, happens in the community, a young boy dies, and they decide to make this crime, to pin this crime on, on the Jewish community. And that's, that's the blood libel in a nutshell, right? Well, you have a reporter from the New York Times, Genia Belafonte, who wrote an article over the weekend that I think almost every liberal friend I have either sent me via email or on Facebook Messenger or posted it about a 70-ish guy, 70-year guy who was a political conservative who lived in the New York area, who went on a cruise, caught coronavirus, and passed away. And in the article, it claims that he believed certain people on Fox News who were initially downplaying some aspects of the virus, namely Sean Hannity. And that's why he went on on this, went off on this cruise. There's a couple of problems with this story that have come to light since the writing of the story. Uh, Well, the first problem was even before we found out some of these incredible facts I'm going to tell you in a second. The first thing that was troublesome about it was, of course, everyone took this on the left, took this article as an excuse to say, and this is exactly the wording that was sent to me in a number of the messages and emails I got from my liberal friends, uh, Trump and Fox News have blood on their hands. Now, how Trump got into this, I don't really know, because Trump wasn't telling people to go on cruises. But okay. And neither was Fox News, for all I know. I think they were just, you had some people on Fox News who were downplaying. You had some people on Fox News who were playing it up, by the way. But that's a factual issue I'll get into in just a second. But you had a lot of people, forget about my friends, you had a lot of very prominent people writing on their Facebook feeds and Twitter feeds. These are the blue check journalists and former government officials and things like that, or current government officials saying exactly what I just said. Fox News and Trump have blood on their hands. This nice old man, we don't agree with him politically, he wouldn't have gone on that cruise if it weren't weren't for the fact that he were a Sean Hannity fan when Sean Hannity downplayed the virus, and now he's dead. Well, the first factual problem with that article came to light about, I want to say, six hours later. When somebody noted that in the article they mentioned that Sean Hannity downplayed the virus on a particular day in March, and they realized that the guy went on the cruise about a week before that. So in other words, the article was saying, well, he saw Sean Hannity say this, and then he went on the cruise, the problem being that he was already on the cruise when Sean Hannity said that. That was about a week before that he went off to sea, as they say. So that's one, you know, big problem. Big problem with the article. A factual problem that a fact checker should have caught. Something that should have been fixed. Well, it was fixed. (laughs) So to speak, it was fixed. The New York Times did something that a lot of news organizations have started to do lately called stealth editing. That means they edit the piece. They take out, in in this case, they took out that part about Sean Hannity because it was factually incorrect. But what what they didn't do in italics at the end of the article or the beginning of the article is say... An original, the original form of this article incorrectly stated 
that the man who passed away watched Sean Hannity downplay the virus and then he went on the cruise. It has subsequently been pointed out to the Times that that statement by Hannity was made after the man went on his cruise. We apologize for the error. That's what you're supposed to do in news. I mean, this is textbook journalism school 101, what you are supposed to do when you edit a fact like that out of an article. And let me tell you something. I've been the victim of very aggressive forms of that process, and and I'm okay with it. Uh, About three years ago, I wrote a column, maybe about two and a half years ago, I wrote a column about John F. Kennedy's budget and tax cuts in 1962. And I kept saying that it was 45 years ago or 48 years ago when I wrote it, when obviously it was 58 years ago. I just got my math wrong. It was, I was talking about the 60s, and this was already 2018 or 2017, and, I, and, and that's more than 50 years later, and I, and I, just, you know, and I got that wrong. It was, just, it was just a quick kind of you know, typo-type error. Obviously, I was talking about the 60s. I had the, the correct dates written in there, but when I was doing my math in subsequent sentences, I was saying 40 years ago or, or 45 years ago. So not only did my editors rightfully fix that, but they also rightfully, and I think that this was, you know, look, they had to follow the rules, but it's obvious, like, did they really need to put that in there? And the answer is, I guess, yes, if that's what your policy is. They wrote in italics, this, the original edition of this column by Jake Novak incorrectly stated that these events happened 40 years ago when it happened 50 plus years ago. That, that's, it was just a question of my math, not the date that I put on in the original sentence. That's what you do. So in that case, it wasn't like a fact that changed anything. It was, it was just bad math, and they fixed it, and they let everyone know that we got it wrong in the beginning. So in other words, the New York Times was supposed to – this is a stealth editing thing that we keep seeing now in a lot of newspapers and websites and things like that where they are fixing major facts, fixing them, which I think they should do. Obviously, they shouldn't just leave incorrect stuff in there. But they're not admitting that they got it wrong, and of course, without that <laughs> – this is a key fact of the story. Is the story that much more power, as powerful when you find out that the, that the event that they're talking about that supposedly convinced this guy to go on the cruise happened after he left on the cruise? Of course it isn't. It's the whole story. It's the meat of the story. For those of you who know, you know Talmudic terminology and, 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 and Jewish terminology, it's the ikar. It's the ikar. It's the, it's the ikar of the story. It is the essence of that story. And they just, they just, they just stealth, they, they wipe it out of there and they don't even admit that they got it wrong. This is the height of journalistic mal- malpractice. This is, this is absolutely unethical and fraudulent. But wait, there's more. <laughs> there's more to the story, my friends. If, you, if, if that weren't bad enough, if what I've just described to you isn't bad enough, I've got more for you. Then I found out from some friends, that the same reporter who did this story, Genia Belafante, who's making this big point about how terrible it is that Fox News is downplaying the virus and telling people it's not so bad, and that's why this lovely man died. She's pounding her fist about it, and the story that is tugging on people's heartstrings in her own Twitter feed on February 27th, around the time that this guy went on the cruise, she is tweeting the exact same thing. She is saying, I don't know what the big deal is about this virus. Why are people so afraid? It's already starting to dissipate in China. What's the problem? And when somebody sent that to me, I thought, oh, my God, this has got to be one of those fake tweets where somebody superimposes a tweet and it's, and it's fake news and it's not real. But I went on her Twitter feed, 
scrolled all the way down to February 27th because I'm not so good at the face at the Twitter search feature. I've done it once before successfully, but not, but I scrolled down last night. It took me a while to get down to February 27th. And there it was in her tweets and replies. You know, you got to look at replies because that's something that doesn't come up on the original setting. And there it is. She's tweeting to, it sounded like, I think it was Morning Joe on MSNBC, that exact same message. Now, whether she forgot about it, conveniently, that she was just another one of those naysayers, maybe worse than Hannity, maybe just like Hannity, I don't know. Whether she knew about it and hoped and, and hope no one would notice, although you would think she would delete the tweet, but she hadn't as of last night, maybe she's done now. I mean, are you kidding me? <laughs> and then I had more people tell me even more information, which is that the children of this man who passed away are not conservatives. They really don't agree. With, they never agree with their father's politics. And that when he died, they did the thing that I talked about earlier, which is they decided to blame their usual enemies, whether they had something else to do with it or not. And they probably led this woman down this incorrect path of blaming Sean Hannity again and, and, and Fox News. So the whole thing is a huge mess. I think it's a huge scandal for the New York Times. Any single piece of the thing I just mentioned is an example of a huge problem for the New York Times ethically. Will they be called out by, by, their, by their peers on the left? I highly doubt it. Will the paper write an apology? I highly doubt it. The fact that Genia Belafonte hadn't deleted the tweet, the tweet as of the last time I checked gives me some hope, maybe a 2% chance that she has some integrity and maybe she'll be willing to admit a mistake here. I don't know, I d- but I doubt it. I still doubt it. Like I said, 2% chance. But this is dangerous, folks. When, we're, when we so hate the other side that every bad thing that happens has to be blamed on them and they will twist every fact and every little detail to make it sound that way, <laughs> boy, it really sounds a lot like the blood libel. I'm sorry, and I'm not trying to compare one or the other, but, it's, but, but I'm, what I'm trying to say is that the, there's machina- machinations here that is too similar for comfort. Too similar for comfort. Now, just in the last couple of minutes uh, here on Novak Now on the Nachum Siegel Network, I want to talk just really quickly about a couple of things that I'm hoping will be good that come out of the coronavirus that aren't about health care. Obviously, the biggest thing we're hoping for is a vaccine and a cure and things that will keep us healthier and learning more about social distancing. That's all about public health, and, and, and we've talked about that. I and others have done that. But there's two things I want to say that I hope happen that come out of the coronavirus. One is that aren't about health. One is some kind of public works improvement here. Now, I'm not a huge fan of the government building up a bunch of new things or other stuff like that, but this would be a really good time, right, for New York City and for the New York area to get road crews out there with social distancing to do the road work, right? Because there's not a lot of traffic on the roads. You would think someone would have thought of that. Maybe somebody will. I'm not the first one. Actually, the first person I heard talk about that was my father-in-law. Then I heard someone else talk about it. I would really hope that that is one thing that happens. And let's all think about some other things that can happen now because people are off the streets for the most part in their cars and out of other buildings. Maybe, maybe a lot of school improvements can be done. Again, I'm not talking about building new stuff. I'm talking about improving stuff, fixing stuff that we know we need and doing that now when the, when the people aren't in the buildings or people aren't on the roads. The second thing is really different and I've written an entire column about it and you can find it on my LinkedIn feed and also on my Twitter feed. It'll be there if you keep scrolling down. A number of schools have realized that they can't impose the standardized testing requirements this year because we don't know when these tests are going to be conducted. And I can't think of any single thing that would improve the intellectual quality of our schools from colleges all the way down to kindergarten 
that would do it in one fell swoop better than getting rid of the SAT and the ACT because they are anti-intellectual exercises. They don't spawn a love for learning. They, it's quite the opposite. And these are the, for the kids who are in the good schools. I'm not even talking about underprivileged areas, poor areas, and, and, and schools that are really underperforming. In the so-called superior schools, there's still SAT, ACT, AP test obsessed, which is an anti-intellectual exercise in almost anybody's objective opinion. These are two thing, good things that could happen that come out of this coronavirus that I hope at least something we get some good things that come out of it from, in, in all the bad. I'm Jake Novak. This has been Novak Now on the Nachum Siegel Network. I hope to speak to you again next week.